Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder. You know, she's done it a few times. Uh, now she is writing a rocket ship and we're going to be talking about all the good stuff that we like to hear, building, scaling, financing, and all of the above. You know, we're going to be going, you know, a little bit deeper, you know, around finding product market fit, fundraising, you know, as well, and the landscape tool, and then finding the inspiration for finding really a problem that you want to tackle, you know, amongst the other things. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Stephanie Lapierre. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So originally from Quebec, you know, a family of entrepreneurs. Give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, so um, I came from a, a family of entrepreneurs. Um, more prominently, my grandfather had started Pepsi in eastern Quebec. And so back in the, I think in the 40s, he was 25 when he left the family nest to established himself in the eastern Quebec and then uh, took the franchise of Pepsi. So bottled by hand distributed initially, I think by hand or by truck, door to door, um, and then uh, built a pretty big franchise. Because I don't know if you know this, but the only place I think in the world that Pepsi has a higher market share than Coke is in Quebec. And so I'd like to attribute this to my family. Uh, he unfortunately passed away when he was in his 60s. So he was fairly young. And my grandmother was much younger than him, had three kids, and decided to take over the business. And so she she went with her head of supply chain and her head of finance to PepsiCo and defended keeping the business um, and won. And so she was able to run Pepsi in, in the Eastern Quebec for a long time until PepsiCo uh, centralized all its operations and bought up its franchise as in, I think it was 1991. And so I got to grow up with a pretty, you know, uh, sort of iconic person in my life that was uh, very... Um, very strong, but also remain uh, incredibly feminine and raised three kids on her own with help, um, but was very involved in the community, very involved with her employees and, uh, you know, managed to successfully grow Pepsi in Quebec. And so that, that was a lot of inspiration, but I come from a world of entrepreneurs, everybody in my family, my sister, my brother, all my childhood friends, even if they're lawyers or real estate agent, they all have their own firm. And so Definitely uh, part of my DNA and part of my, uh, my um, you know, my childhood sort of seeing, you know, take control of your destiny. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, obviously, growing up and, and having a grandmother that, 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 that is a powerhouse like that, no? I'm sure that that really got you inspired. I guess, what were some of the biggest lessons that you took away from, from really seeing your grandmother, you know, really taking the reins and, and making it happen like that? I think in, in um, you know, I was just actually in Quebec last night having dinner with all the women in my family, and they're all very strong women who have all chosen careers where they're disrupting, uh, and it's all in very male-dominated space. The founder and CEO in tech and my cousins in engineering, where I think she's the only woman engineer in her entire company. And so I think it broke some barriers for us as we've never saw gender as being a blocker or a disadvantage. Uh, in fact, I didn't actually really thought of it until we start raising capital. And then I became aware of how, you know, um, how little 
a lot of the venture capital is going to women founder. I think it's 3% of venture capital goes to women founded companies. Uh, and I was just not aware of this until it became a thing. And we were, we raised capital with two funds that were women um, focused um, investment firm, a stand up ventures and the women in tech fund from BDC. And so and I became sort of because I was one of the first investment and those funds uh, got more involved in the community. But I think seeing my grandmother being in male dominated space and there's a really famous picture of her with I think something like 25 to 30 men from Japan who came to Quebec and learn about supply chain from her. And so this, this beautiful feminine woman in the middle, of like all of these men. Um, so that's sort of the image I, I, I got. And so I think staying true to myself, I do have three kids of my own. Luckily I don't raise them by myself. I'm happily married. Um, but, um, you know, I think it's uh yeah, I think it just opened up the world to not use that as a handicap, but as an opportunity. Now in your case, uh, obviously, you did your first business, you know, very early on, you know, which was uh, doing corporate events. Now you ended up selling that. So I think that that uh, gave you some good visibility into the world of business. But you also, you know, in that route of, of, of being independent, you know, you decided to go to Whistler too and spend some time skiing there and, 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 and learning English. So I guess, how was that, you know, also for you, I guess, first, seeing the full cycle of running a business and then selling it, but then also having your own independence, you know, and, and skiing for, for some time in Whistler is not bad. Well, I think it's part of my DNA too, just being my, my parent gave us a lot of freedom very early on. And so, you know, you learn by making mistakes and by uh, trying things. And so I've definitely always had an appetite for adventure. And when I was 18, decided to leave Quebec and leave the comfort of my province and my language and my culture to go and venture into the world and cross Canada with my best friend to go to Whistler. And in no, not knowing much English, I thought I knew English until I left Quebec. <laughs> I realized I really didn't. Um, and so it, it opened the, my, my view into the world because getting to Whistler, I got to meet people from all around the world for, you know, very different background, uh, people that had been incredibly successful when you're, when you're in that environment where people are coming from all around the world to ski. And that just opened my eyes to what was possible. And so it was very hard for me to even think of coming back to Quebec one day because I just saw the world as being a bigger place. So definitely a big appetite for adventure, um, tolerance for risk. Like I left Quebec not even looking back. <laughs> I was like so excited for what's coming. And so there's definitely... You know, I think we have a bit of a DNA among founders of, of a lot of appetite or a lot of bandwidth for risk, and we don't see risk in the same sort of way. Um, and so I think that, that yeah, that's probably very much part of my personality. So obviously no surprise that uh, you went up to University of Studied Business, you know, amongst uh, other things that you could have studied. You know, you decide to study business with some marketing and management in there. Uh, now, after university, you did quite a bit of, um, you know, smaller companies. You worked for a startup there where they only had four employees uh, to bigger companies. And obviously that was, you know, a, a sequence of events that led you uh, ultimately to Matchbook, which was a pivotal moment that, you know, ultimately was what propelled you to what you're doing right now with Tealbook. But walk us through what happened, you know, and what you experienced from being perhaps at a small startup to then going to a larger corporation. And then also what pushed you to want to go at it again, you know, on your own, having experienced all of that. Well, I think the, the big corporate world was a moment in time for me. If you look at my entire career, it's been mostly startup 
world, high energy, high pace. Um, it did open my mind to just, it's a lot of the same challenges in a bigger environment, just more people and different challenges, but um, that structured, you know, sort of political environment is just not my, my thing. <laughs> so that was a good learning is I don't want to do that. I, I, we can't move fast enough and there's too much red tape for me. Uh, I want to be able to make decisions and move really quickly and respond to what's happening in the market. And so that was um, a good learning there, but it gave me you know, my early twenties, some really good training, right. To understand the world and the corporate environment and how, you know, what, what we need to manage around our customers because we large we sell to large enterprise so i've got a good understanding of what our customers have to do to build a business case and navigate their own you know political issues and, and get budgets and things like that so those were good exposure but yeah definitely been more comfortable always in smaller space where i think the opportunities are kind of endless um if you you know if you uh, pay attention to them and you you adapt quickly to be able to capitalize on those opportunities so definitely um more interested in that. And my first business or my second business matchbook was inspired by being in large companies where I was in a very competitive environment. Uh, I was in marketing and I was spending a lot of time meeting with vendors that were telling me how innovative they were. And so you take, you take the time to have coffee and lunch and learn because you want to know what's happening in the world. And you want to make sure that you're taking advantage of those new innovation but I found that most of them were not that innovative and to find innovation, true innovation required a lot of time. And so I had the idea of matchbook stemming from, I think there's maybe a service that, that should exist where, you know, there's a good understanding of the business requirements and the problem that needs to be solved and then go out in the world and find true innovation. Like who's doing things uh, either to solve very similar problems or a group of companies that can brainstorm to develop some really truly innovative ideas that can turn a brand or company more competitively. And so Matchbook stemmed from that. And I launched that business in 2006. And so already, you know, quite a, a long time ago, but really, really successful company. I, I got my first mandate within four hours of sending an email that was pre social media, you know, <laughs> so I sent an email to my network and then within four hours, I got a, a, a call back saying, you know, I heard you guys can help us find, in this case was a drug that was being launched and they were looking for an ad agency that did more consumer based type of marketing. And so I said, you know, can you guys help us? And it was me and I had a baby at the time. I just had given birth to my first daughter. And I was like, yeah, I, you know, yeah, I'll talk to the team and we'll get back to you on next steps. <laughs> so, uh, and that company, you know, is 16 years old and it's still running. I don't operate it anymore, but I'm really fortunate to have found people that have continued um, to manage that, that, that company. But it also gave me a lens into a bigger problem that I saw and, you know, I've been challenged quite a few times over the years as to, you, know, you build a consulting firm with healthy margin that's always been profitable. You know, I had a really good quality of life and could balance both. Like, why, why tier book? Like, why going into this crazy journey where, you know, I need to raise capital, I need to turn my life upside down. And it was really a passion project because I saw a problem. I wanted to solve, and I spent nine years trying to kill the idea to not start Tealbook. And at one point in time, where I saw sort of the stars aligning, I thought if I don't, if I don't do it, I don't want to regret not having done it. 
and then nothing changes or worse, someone else does it. And it's like, oh, I thought of that, but I never did it. I didn't want to be that person that had to live with that kind of regret. And so decided to, um, you know, to go boat feet in and, you know. And what was that point? What what was that point? Because obviously nine years, you know, trying to push the idea away and then it keeps coming. And then what was that day where you were like, I got to do something here about this? What, What happened for you after nine years to really take action? So every single customer I worked with needed better quality information on their third-party provider. Um, it was the biggest blocker for them to making fast and good decision. And I saw you know, millions to billions of dollars being spent on goods and services being exchanged by third-party providers or suppliers, but also the management of those relationships. You, know, you talk companies who have 30,000 to 150,000 suppliers in their vendor master each of those relationships required people <laughs> to like do a discovery, to maybe run an RFP, to negotiate, to do compliance and due diligence, to onboard that supplier to their system, to pay those suppliers, to manage the information. And what I saw is none of my clients had true visibility. Like they can't answer basic questions. And I thought this is such a massive investment of, you know, that's completely being underutilized. And if it could be actually optimize properly, um, this could represent hundreds of millions of dollars in value. And so I work with a company called Genentech in San Francisco, and my consulting business was hired to do two projects that required, I think it was like 16 weeks of full-time work. So we're talking about pretty significant mandate. And they had no information. Like I was, we're trying to find data within the organization and no one had the institutional knowledge. We had to go to different functions to put all the pieces together. In some cases, the suppliers would tell us of the history with, with the company. And then I remember in the end, we had all these companies coming to pitch. And this company had spent about $100,000 in their pitch, putting all the pieces together to win this significant piece of business. And someone walked in the meeting and said, oh, we can't use that supplier because of some compliance issue. But no one knew right through the whole process because no one was in that role anymore. And I thought, this is crazy to me. That, you know, you can't just have visibility. Like, who have we done business with? Who have we paid? Who's delivered value? How can we optimize them better? Where can we find the alternate, like, suppliers to help us meet our business objective? And, and if this idea existed, they could have done all of this within hours, right? Maybe a couple, like, days, but we're not talking about months. Um, and so I came back from San Francisco thinking, this is a company that's across SAP, Facebook, LinkedIn, Salesforce, and they don't have a solution. And so this was sort of the catalyst for me. And I start seeing a big transition from on-premise software to cloud-based technology, which was key. Um, This was the beginning of big data and also ML, AI, which I didn't fully know at the beginning, but then became a core component of how we differentiated our tech. And so when, when, all those pieces were starting to come together. Debatably, we were maybe a bit early, but at the same time, we learned so much by building different, you know, building blocks of the, of the solution that it gave us a massive leader's advantage, especially when COVID happened and there was a lot of disruption in supply chain. And suddenly, you know, people were looking for information and we were a fantastic source of data for, uh, for you know, for the market. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, 
you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So how do you guys make money with Tailbook for the people that are listening to really understand the business model? Oh, you know, the business model in the early days, I, we could talk for hours of how many crazy things we did in the beginning. And I bootstrapped the first two years. Um, you know, the first two years, I was charging a membership fee to suppliers and I needed $25,000 to pay my engineering team. And so as long as I, I sold five membership to suppliers, I could, I could stay in business. Uh, now, I mean, obviously we've raised capital, but the model had to change because we need to be able to scale. And our customers, which is large enterprise, wanted information on all their suppliers, not just suppliers who would come in and pay a membership or put, populate their information in a profile. And so we need to find a way to ingest data faster. And so that's when we start introducing ML and AI to um, gather any information on every B2B company in the world. And so we charge, uh, and our model's changing. We're just about to release a new data platform. And so, um, you know, we live a bit in two worlds. One is an application where it's a platform fee, but then we have user licenses because our clients are using our data through an application for specific workflow that solve a specific business problem. And we're moving to an, a platform that is more um, of data operation filled with content that our customers can choose information that they need, and then they can apply business rule and syndicate high quality, consistent data on their third party provider across all their systems and tools. So it could be BI tool, data lake, source to pay, uh, ERPs, uh, payment systems, compliance systems, third party risk system, even in Salesforce to have balance of trade. And so our business model has evolved and it's continued to evolve. And this is uh, our levers of how much data our customers want to consume, uh, the API call, where do they want the data to be syndicated? And we will reintroduce some application, but more around, again, um, automating and uh, accelerating the process of validating data, doing data audits, consuming the data more from a less structured, sort of more insight driven. So uh, again, our model will keep evolving, but it's... Um, it's really the, 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 our product is data. The, the better the information, the better quality of the information we have on suppliers, the more content, the more attributes we're able to cover, the more value our customers get and the more use cases they can address based on the data that they're consuming. 
So you guys say have raised 72 million and you were alluding to it as to how you were able to get the uh, female investors too, you know, to, to, to bet on you guys. So how was the journey of, of raising money too? Well, in the beginning, it was really hard. Uh, I had never raised capital. So my, my matchbook uh, didn't need capital. I just built it with one customer at the time, made enough money. But this, this business needed quite a bit of investment because we were investing in technology and we had to build the tech and, and, and building a data company. It's very capital intensive, especially in the early days. Um, and so in the beginning, when I, I won six customers, I had some really big clients um, and I went and I contacted everyone that had an investor <laughs> title next to them. I must have met hundreds of investors and uh, I was asking feedback, but I think generally people were really polite, you know, oh, you're too early, you're too late, you're this and that. And then it's until I, I started really asking, I need constructive feedback. I need to be able to, to successfully raise capital. And it was one investor at the beginning who said, hey, Lone Ranger, you can't, you can't be doing this on your own. And I mean, what do you mean? It's like you need a team, you need to complementary skill. You don't have a tech background. You need your tech in-house and a CTO that knows what they're doing. Um, it's not because you're a female founder, you can't raise capital. It's just your risk profile is way too high. You're on your own. You know, you're, you get a funny accent. I'm better now, but at the time I had a pretty strong French Canadian accent. Uh, it's like, you haven't gone to Stanford. You don't have, you have not built a tech company before. Like, who are you? <laughs> you know, and it's the, you know, if an investor will put a bet on you, plus you have three kids, what happens if your kids get sick, right? Like, like it's all you. And at the time I, I, I told him, I was like, but I need capital to hire the team. He's like, you'll not, you won't get capital unless you have the team. And that was, it, I was pretty defeated at that moment because I, I was thinking like, how do I attract co-founders or, or executive to come and join me without being able to pay them? And all the stars aligned at the time, I was able to find a CTO that came with a CEO that came with a check that had just exited from a company. So brought engineers. And so that sort of unblock. Uh, that and I was able to go back to investors I had met and successfully close that first round of institutional capital. And this was with Stand Up Venture. It was a, a, a fund dedicated to female founder, and we were the first investment in Stand Up Ventures. Um, after that, the second round still hard because we're trying to figure out what we were building. We had the technology, we had some customers, but you know, you really needed investors that understood what we were building. And what I found through my entire journey is that, you know, I spend a lot of time in the early days convincing investors of what we were building and why other companies like SAP or Oracle or Coupa couldn't build what we were building. Uh, the value of having data that becomes more valuable over time back then was really hard to explain a machine learning SaaS, you know, model. And, um, and so what I found is the investors, all my investors across my entire journey got the concept within seconds. And what was really important, without making this the headline, it was what's an analogy that an investor can understand. And as soon as we start focusing on, we are the Zoom info to the buy side, right? Like if you look at the the, the sales and marketing side, Salesforce became the cloud-based technology with the promise to digitize that data, but it required humans. Like Salesforce doesn't get good on its own. You need people to maintain the information in Salesforce until the Zoom info started to automate the quality of data. And once it's integrated it into Salesforce, then you could actually get much better outcome from it. And so it, it was the closest analogy that we had that we're, we're focusing on data that could syndicate into cloud-based technology to make the technology much more effective and deliver better business outcome. And as soon as we made that connection, investors 
got it and got really excited about the potential. And it's those investors that put, you know, gave us term sheets. And so if I found, if I found, if I got too much into convincing them or answering all these questions versus the investors that like, I totally get it. This is a huge TAM, but let's dive in. And, and it's those investors that I focus and I was successful in closing our rounds. And then, you know, post seed extension, it all became about metrics. And so, you know, I've heard from an investor that investors, they, they may not know anything about your business, but if you have best in class metrics, they'll get on a plane to come and meet you. And so it became really important that we got best in class metrics, which we got, you know, um, series A, series B, we got preemptive term sheets. Uh, re- really fortunate at the time to raise capital when we did with really good people and good investors that had, you know, experience in our space that really believed in the vision and also just good humans, which, you know, it's a, it means a lot when you're going through this crazy journey because there's no perfect, there's no perfect path. You know, if you're a founder, you know, uh, everyone has their own kind of crazies and we've certainly have gone through a lot of different stages of our business and it requires you know, investors that and board members that are supportive. So obviously, you know, investment requires vision. So I guess if you were to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Teobook is fully realized, what does that world look like? Every enterprise is have implemented a Teobook. Um, it generates all the information that they need. It it unifies all the data set to the right supplier. And it feeds that through their systems. Um, it's transformative for organization. It removes an enormous amount of operational costs. It brings a lot of efficiency. Um, and then they're able to maximize the investment that they're making in technology and deliver significant business outcome that it's, you know, driving better margins to mitigating risk and 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 not just mitigating risk, but when they are they're able to recover. It allows them to hit their ESG target. It allows them to be much more sustainable, much more competitive. And so it's it's quite transformative. And we see a really big market on the other side, on the sell side, because of the way that we're ingesting data. Uh, we're building some really proprietary data set that are going to be incredibly valuable to the sell side when we hit a certain critical mass. And so our view is that our TAM continue, our gates continue to open as we're sort of hitting there's a certain critical mass in one market, but for this to all happen, you know, we need to be the gold standard in data quality and be the, um, you know, the, 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 the leader and providing, um, you know, a solution for those companies, which is all companies to get better quality data, more scale and more control and governance over the data that's flowing through their systems. So obviously we're talking about the, um, we're talking about the future here, but I want to talk about the past, but doing so with a lens of reflection. So let's say, I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, you know, maybe to that moment where you were thinking about starting, you know, maybe Matchbook or, or even before, you know, where you were like, you know, wondering, you know, maybe I should do something on my own here because you've now been at it for a while. I mean, we're talking about, you know, being a founder, you know, obviously since you started the first company at 18, but, you know, for example, with Matchbook, you got started about 16 years ago. So imagine if I was to take you back. And you have the opportunity of having a chat with that younger self. And you're able to give that younger Stephanie one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I don't think I would want to. <laughs> because the, the, the naivety of not knowing is what got me into this. And the amount of work and how hard the last eight years have been through all the challenges 
Um, I think I would have scared myself back then if I had known how intense, how consuming it would have been with all the ups and downs of building this business. And so I think I would have exhausted myself before I even started. But when you go into it with this vision, like you can take one challenge at the time and you can digest it, process it, move on to the next challenge. And it becomes more about how fast can you process business challenges? Because that's all we do as a business is just, you know, manage challenges and to get to the next milestone. So honestly, I think ignorance is a bit of a bliss. And I don't think I would want to tell my old self anything, but just, you know, (laughs) I think, and, and not that I have regrets. I have no regrets. I'm so proud of what I've accomplished. And I've always went to the lens, even my early angel investors, where I'd say like, you know, put don't put your life savings into my company because we have a 1% chance of being successful. It's a big opportunity. It's a big idea. It was a passion project for me. It was like, I wanted to see it through because I, I felt it was the right thing that the companies, the world needed. Um, but it was a long shot. And so I've always had this lens that this is a long shot. It could not work. And so I had to be comfortable with the fact that it could fail. Obviously, I have a lot of accountability to my employees, to our customers, to our investors. Um, I always had sort of this lens that it, it could not be successful and, but I'm going to do everything possible to make this company a success. I will work my, my tail off to make sure it's a success. And that's the promise I made my early investors. Um, yeah. So anyway, I, I don't think I would want to tell my old self anything because that person is blissfully ignorant of all the challenges ahead. <laughs> I would want to keep her hopeful. <laughs> I hear you. I hear. So, so Stephanie, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn, so please connect on LinkedIn. It's Stephanie with a Y, so that differentiates me. Um, that's probably the best place. Obviously, we have a website, tailbook.com, so if you're interested in the technology itself, please reach out to our team. But if you're a founder, if you're a strategic, if you're someone that just wants to learn more about the journey, um, have any sort of questions and I don't have all the answers, but when I, I do enjoy mentoring younger founders, um, especially female founders, and you know what I've learned can be helpful. And if I can avoid making some expensive mistakes that I've made over the years, and I went with the with the mindset that I was going to try to reduce the risk and the mistakes by surrounding myself with really smart people. And I think I've made every possible mistake <laughs> I've ever can make. So I don't know how you avoid it. I tried. I I failed. Um, Because at the end of the day, you're going to make the decisions that you decide to make. But anyway, I'm happy to chat anytime. If you have some questions, um, you know, please, please DM me on LinkedIn. It's the best way to get a hold of me. Amazing. Well, hey, Stephanie, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Well, thank you so much and enjoy the holidays. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.